Good morning. We are going to talk about that Savior this morning. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Uh, We are going to open our Bibles and turn to Matthew 9. And I want to ask if you would stand with me to read God's Word. I want to remind you why I ask you to stand. I read in Nehemiah chapter 8, when they opened up God's book, the people stood. Now they also did other things. They fell on their faces before God. They, they shouted amen and amen and other things like that. Uh, but uh, we, for me, it's helpful to stand to remind myself that this is not man's word. But this is God's word. And it is different than man's word. Now, before I read, I want to say this. There, there really are only two ways to live. One is for Jesus and one is for yourself. And you either live under God and his authority or you think you are God. You are your own authority. And the idea is you either live Christ-centered, gospel-saturated, cross-focused life seeking God's glory, or self-centered, self-focused, self-absorbed, and running hell-bent away from God. Now, our passage today, you know, clearly uh, shows the underlying assumptions behind those two ways of living. We're going to see one group who acknowledges Jesus as the sovereign Savior, and learns from him. We will see this, this group echoes Samuel's prayer where he prayed, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now, the other group is different, and there are the proud Pharisees, the spiritually blind guides to the blind, and they come to God with their minds already made up. They reject Jesus in favor of what they already know. So let's see what God has for us today in his word. Matthew 9 verses 32 to 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can be brought to you. We thank you that you are the one who is all-powerful. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken in your word. And we pray right now, Lord, that as we listen, as we think, as as we meditate on your word, as we are challenged by your word, we pray, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do in us that you would have your way with us, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we will be careful to give you all the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is the sovereign Savior. He is the sovereign Savior. He is in control. He is the one who gives salvation to whomever he pleases to whomever he chooses. And this has huge implications for those of us who follow him in terms of confidence in him and trust in him and the faith, repentance, and obedience that he inspires and enables. It has huge ramifications for everyone who came in contact with Jesus during his time on earth. Look with me at verse 32 of Matthew chapter 9. First, what we see in this passage is a helpless captive. Here, by the way, is the return of the word behold. 
We last encountered it in chapter 9, verse 20. It means, look, pay attention. Something significant is about to happen. In this case, a mute, demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. The man could not speak, and he was possessed by a demon. That's why he could not speak. The demon prevented him from speaking, kept him from speaking. He did not come to Jesus, though, on his own accord. Someone brought him to Jesus. They brought this man. So we see this helpless captive. He can't do anything for himself. He cannot even ask for help, at least not verbally. And he is possessed with a demon, so he is anti-Christ at that point. He is not with Christ. He is indwelt and, and therefore uh, controlled by this demon. Helpless captive. Next, we see a merciful act. Verse 33. The demon was cast out. It just tells us that when the demon had been cast out. So understated, we miss its magnitude. Only by God's authority can such an act take place. Only God can do that. Jesus is God. He did it. He is the final authority in the universe. John chapter 1 tells us that he is the creator. And that verse 14 tells us he is full of grace and truth. He pours out grace on this helpless captive. But next we see a wonderful outcome. Because in verse 33 it tells us that when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. The mute man spoke. It was proof that he was freed from demonic activity. Jesus loosed his tongue and he spoke. Talk about unbelievable. In those days, if you were mute, that was thought of as an irreversible condition. People would have well known that this man was mute and in their minds, irreparably so. This was impossible. Therefore, unbelievable. But those who saw it could not deny it. Those who believed what they saw came from God made a bold statement in verse 33. A bold statement. The crowd's response sums up the impression that the miracles of chapters 8 and 9 have created. Basically, amazement and wonder at Jesus. Never have we seen anything like this in all Israel, they say. It's a bold statement. God had worked through His people. God had worked through His chosen leaders. God had worked through prophets through the years and had done some amazing things. But never before had anything like this been seen. Now Elijah and Elisha had done some extraordinary healing miracles. But nothing like this. And so in verse 33, we, we see that the crowds were awestruck by Jesus' miracles. And those who had seen it could not deny it. But on the part of the evil-minded Pharisees, they would not attribute it to God. They could not deny that it happened. It happened right before their very eyes. They could not attribute, they would not, though, attribute it to God. They could not deny it, so they said Satan was the cause. It was a shocking accusation. We see it in verse 34. It was a sinister new twist 
to the official hostility to Jesus. False accusations and blasphemy from demon-inspired men who thought they knew better than Jesus. Thought they were better than Jesus. Thought they were in and Jesus was out. They were totally deceived. They said that Jesus was casting out demons by Satan's power. It's ludicrous. Blasphemous. It's ridiculous. Go with me to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we, we see this episode seeming to be alluded to. Verse 20. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, they went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. It was so crowded, everyone was flocking to Jesus. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's lost his senses. Verse 22, when the scribes came down from Jerusalem, they were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. And they were saying by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. Beelzebul probably derived from the Hebrew words zebel, dung, and zibel, idolatrous sacrifice. It was used as a slander against the devil. It's not a good name for the devil if you could have one. It was used as a slander against the devil, calling him the god of dung. Those of you who are old enough, you know what dung is. Tell your kids later. Then have them wash their hands, right? The Pharisees tried to link the title to Jesus. That Jesus was in league with the god of dung. Therefore, as filthy as imaginable. Therefore, as bad as can be. Alfred Edersheim in The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah says that this narrative uh, should not be confused with the account in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke 11, which happened much later in our Lord's life, when the opposition of the Pharisees took on much larger proportions and Jesus' wording in those passages clearly pointed out the character and guilt of his enemies. When he explained what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is and its penalty, and we're going to wait until chapter 12 to look in more detail. But how does it make you feel when someone accuses Jesus? Think about when someone accuses your best friend, or your spouse, or one of your kids. Think about the, the indignation that rises up within you when, when someone close to you, someone in league with you, is, is slandered or is, uh, is falsely accused. How does it make you feel when someone accuses Jesus. Does, does hot anger well up within you at these Pharisees from so, so long ago because they were calling Jesus the very opposite of God? As far from God as you can get? We defend those we love. Christ's example, by the way, of not responding immediately here is a reminder to us that when accused falsely, God will make all things known. God will bring the truth to light and sometimes sometimes resting under misunderstanding in the midst of misunderstanding is our best course. But these verses today, they're three short verses. There's a brief story of a helpless captive and a merciful act and a wonderful outcome and 
a bold statement as well as a shocking accusation. I mean, how much more concise can you get? Three verses and all that. Matthew does not waste words. Uses them very carefully. But what do we learn from this passage? First, we've got to look at the context. We've got to look at the context. This is the last of ten miracles in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. In the context of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum and the public displays of his power, showing Jesus' absolute authority as well as the quality of the salvation he gives. There's been a progressive revealing of his uniqueness, not only displaying his authority over illness and demons and nature and death, but also proving his authority to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is God. And it shows these two chapters have been showing the grace God gives and the freedom he brings in Christ. This passage serves as a capstone to chapters 8 and 9 before launching into an into the evangelistic mission of Christ's disciples in chapter 9, verse 35, through chapter 10, verse 39. In this passage, I, I see first the wonder of God's sovereignty. The wonder of God's sovereignty and also the reality of man's responsibility before God. God's sovereignty. From his absolute authority flows his choice to bestow mercy and grace where they're not deserved. Upon the lowest, upon the least, upon the lost. His is sovereign authority. Jesus alone rules. He does what he does of his own accord. In his sovereign power. And that's why people brought others to him. As we see here in verse 32. And really in chapters 8 and 9 you see it happening over and over again. Jesus alone is the Christ. He is God. He is Holy, he is altogether other from his creation. And who can heal but God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and we know that as the lone authority in the universe, God will not give his glory to another. Man is not in charge of God. Now, the, the Pharisees would like to think, wanted to think that they were. Now, just because they said that Jesus was doing what he did by Satan in no way made it true you can deceive yourself into thinking almost anything good book out right now by Greg Tenelshoff called I Told Me So self-deception and the Christian we can talk ourselves into any number of things being true why we need the word of God to set our thinking straight to renew our minds to transform our thinking But Jesus alone rules, and man is not in charge of God. Notice with me that the demon-possessed man could not speak, could not utter a word. He could not express himself in the way that most people do. Now, plenty of demon-possessed men have spoken. All who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh are anti-Christ, against Christ. Therefore, they are pro-Satan. Many are in the world. Many have been in the world. We could rattle off a huge list of names, but we'd leave somebody out. But many are in the world, and all someday will fall before Jesus. He has utmost authority. 
Philippians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11 say that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue, sovereignty, kingship, tells me that he can take care of me and what I'm going through and he can take care of you and what you're going through. He's God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's ever-present. This episode shows Christ's absolute authority. And it also shows the quality of the salvation he gives. Notice that the man doesn't come to Jesus. He is brought. It shows God's sovereign mercy and grace that Jesus alone saves. Verse 32, he was a demon-possessed man who we would know would be an unbeliever held captive by Satan to do his will. And he is brought to Jesus. No, no audible request for help. Just a helpless captive needing someone stronger to save him. In those days, you were mute. You were considered unchangeably mute. Demon possession was a terrifying problem. And Jesus cast the demon out without anything from the mute man. Jesus has mercy on him and sets him free. God acts upon him and he responds. Verse 33, the mute man spoke. In Jesus freeing the demon-possessed mute man, we see Jesus doing a work of grace on someone who isn't asking for it. That's how we receive God's grace initially. We aren't aware of anything God is doing. Like Paul on the road to Damascus. Hell-bent and on our way. But behind the scenes, God is at work. God is doing a work on us, and, and we respond in, in some moment. We, we, we believe. Initially, initially, all we know is that we believe. We come to faith in Christ. We, we, what, we who were uh, diametrically opposed to God now want him in our life. We don't know how to explain it. Later we find out, as we read in the word, we find out that it was God in his grace that brought us to the point and gave us faith. Nothing in us, God gave us the ability to respond and to believe. It's important. Some people will say, well, why would you even want to know about that as long as you know you love Jesus. Why does it matter? It matters supremely because it is important to understand how many times in the Bible does it say so that you may know, so that you may know the truth, so that you may know the exact things about what God has done. It is important to know because it's going to drive how we live our Christian life, our Christian faith. It's important to understand that we don't keep our life in Christ going. He does, and, and he wants our cooperation, our response, our, our willing cooperation. I mean, we do what to become Christians? Believe. There's no work on our part. We do what to grow in Christ? Nothing but trust and obey. As 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, some people plant, some people water. God is the one who is causing the growth. Jesus is in the business of setting captives free who cannot free themselves. 
That's us before we come to know Jesus. We were helpless captives to sin. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us that by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You didn't know that the moment you came to faith in Christ. All you knew is you believed. But we find out that it's by his doing we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us life and peace and righteousness. It's good news that it is not of our doing. If we were hell-bent on destruction... The best news in the world would be that God purposed to save a people for himself that didn't or couldn't do anything on their own behalf. That mercy and grace would be in operation. That's that's good news. You got a helpless captive, you got a merciful act and a wonderful outcome, and it highlights God's sovereignty. Now, the bold statement and the shocking accusation, though, highlight the reality of man's responsibility under God. He reclaims what sin overwhelms, but we must live in freedom in Christ and not slavery to sin. The freed man could now choose to obey. The the freed man, by the way, which he could not do before, now he could do because of Jesus and what he had done. He could walk in victory because Jesus set him free. Speak, live, and part of the community. And he wasn't demon-possessed anymore. Instead of being diametrically opposed to God, he was now in league with Jesus. Could be. Pharisees chose to reject him. And from these last two verses of this passage, 33 and 34, we learn that everybody responds to Jesus. Everyone does. Some were amazed. Some were awestruck in Christ and his presence. That's how we should be. But others blamed his righteous acts on Satan. You can't, get much more, you can't get any more antichrist than that. It's interesting to note that the five miracles in chapter 8 and the five in chapter 9 end in rejection of Jesus. The former in a pagan country, the, the latter in his own. The theme of rejection in the Gospel of Matthew will continue to be built until it, until it uh, crescendos at the cross. All the world is accountable before God. In in the Pharisees' response, we see the height of human sinfulness, the the height of slavery to sin, and the depths of human depravity. Pharisees had curses for Jesus when praises were due. That comes from Satan, not God. I saw a man this week with his head in a trash can. It was way down in the trash can and it stayed there for a long time. I wanted to take a picture. I got my, my phone out to take a picture and he raised his head out of the trash can and put the phone away. He put his head back in the trash can. He didn't see me. I guess he was cleaning it out. I don't know. I wanted to take a picture. The man had his head in the trash can. Isn't there any other better way to clean out a trash can than put your head in it? The Pharisees had their head in the gutter. They had their heads in the trash can. They accused Jesus of being Satan. Like others who reject him, they said, or at least expressed, never, never will we believe in him. Never will we accept Christ's rule. They hated the one that we love. 
and attributed to him the worst imaginable insult. One of the things I learned early on in my Christian life is that I too am capable of unimaginable treason against God. No way could I stand in judgment and of the Pharisees when I have the same propensities. We're depraved. Not as bad as we could be, but bad enough to reserve to deserve wrath and hell. It's interesting. Some people will say, Don't don't talk behind my back. Don't don't gossip about me. We're all I'm I'm sensitive to that. You are you're sensitive to that. But what worse thing could be said to you about you than has already been said in the gospel? We're lost sinners hell-bent on destruction, and the only thing that can save us is God. God is the only one who can save us. The worst has already been said about us. Some will not believe. Some will continue to rebel against God. Run from Him as hard as they can. Fight with all their being. Those who accept Jesus' rule uh, express or uh, um, show the substance and existence of their relationship with God. Those who reject Jesus condemn themselves. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. I might have mentioned this to you before, but summer of 1981... Hume Lake Christian Camp, college conference. My first Christian camp. I was 19 years old. And uh, I didn't bring a Bible. Didn't know you needed to. And they had this testimony service. Kids were, college students were getting up and reading Bible, uh, saying, uh, reciting Bible verses from memory. And I was terrified that they would call on me. <laughs> Because I, I, I actually tried to say John 3.16 in my head and didn't know it all the way through. John 3.16. Let's read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's keep going. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemn themselves. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We cannot blame the devil. We have no one to blame but ourselves. Now, the man was demon-possessed. That's scary. It's scary, isn't it? It's frightening. It's terrifying. And really think about it. Demons know the truth and hate it. They believe and shudder since they will encounter God's righteous wrath against them and there will be no escape for them there is no hope for them they want to deceive as many as they can and take them to hell with them now listen carefully 
If you're a genuine Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've come to faith in Christ, if you believe in the finished work of Christ and you're basing your salvation on that, his work on the cross, his shed blood in your place, you cannot be demon-possessed. You cannot be like this man. You can be harassed. You can open your life up to the, the to giving Satan a foothold and a place in your life where demonic activity happens because of things you've allowed into your life, but you cannot be possessed. How do I know that with confidence? I know that with confidence because Jesus says, if the Son shall set you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When, when you come to faith in Christ, you have all of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and He is indwelling you. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. See, if Christ lives in you, Satan can't. He can knock up against the door. He can kick you. He can attack you, but he cannot indwell Galatians 2.20 tells us that the life which now live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and delivered himself up for us. This mute man was an unbeliever when he was demon-possessed. Now I want to mention something else. In the Bible, demonic activity is not emphasized. It is present but not emphasized. The emphasis is on telling believers to live rightly and not give place to the devil. That is what is emphasized. The New Testament clearly acknowledges the, the, the influence of demonic activity, but the focus is on decisions of people themselves. Give up your will. Examine yourself. Overcome temptation. Accept your own responsibility. Don't blame Satan. Now, demonic influences exist, but we are to live in Christ. 1 John 4, 4 tells us that greater is he who is in you, believers, than he who is in the world. Greater. Far greater. Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross. We are set free. Harry Ironside told a story years and years ago about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. And so the man told him how God had sought him out and found him, how God had loved him and called him and saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, healed him. He's a great witness to the grace of God. He's a great witness to the power and glory of God in Christ. But afterwards, uh, a rather legalistic brother came up to him and criticized his testimony. And he said this, he said, you know, I appreciate all that you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about what you did. You didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh yes, the man said. I'm sorry, I should have said something about my part. My part was running away. And his part was running after me till he got me. 
We all run away. We're all held captive in prisons of our own making. There are some things that God has been impressing upon my heart. One of the things I brought away from the Resolved Conference last weekend is that sentences are significant. Words and and sentences. You remember, you don't remember whole sermons, you remember sentences, right? You remember lines that are spoken, even sentences that God gives you that aren't spoken, that, that, that impress uh, upon your heart and God uses them in your life. Sometimes you hear something that wasn't even said and it's a very profound thing and God uses that for a long time in your life. But sentences are significant. I heard some very significant sentences in the past week. In fact, um, some of the things that were shared this morning were some of the same things that I took away as significant sentences. If you please Jesus, it doesn't matter whom you displease. And if you don't please God, it doesn't matter who you please. I heard that nothing should be more attractive to us than Jesus. I heard that high theology leads to high praise, doxology. But from this passage today, this this brief, concise, short passage, I, I get this truth. The only freedom, the only true freedom is found in being slaves of Christ. The only true freedom is found in being slaves of Christ. The Pharisees were slaves to sin. The man freed by Jesus could now be a slave of Christ. See, you will seek freedom in Christ or you will seek freedom from Christ. The mute man found freedom in Christ. The Pharisees sought freedom from him. John chapter 8. Jesus once again speaking with people speaking to people who believed in him and here's what he said in John chapter 8 and verse 31 if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free they answered him we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And indeed, it will happen. Keyword will. In his book, Surprised by Grace, Tolian Chavidjian says this Submitting to God is the only real freedom because the deepest slavery is self dependence, self reliance. When you live your life believing that everything, family, finances, relationships, career, depend primarily on you. You're enslaved to your strengths and weaknesses. You're trying to be your own savior. See, real life begins when we transfer our trust from our own efforts to Christ's efforts. We will seek freedom in Christ or freedom from Christ. 
Matthew chapter 9, we've seen a lot. Coming to the end of this passage on miracles. We see the bold faith of the paralyzed man. Touching faith of the woman with the chronic illness. The deathless faith of Jairus. The pursuing faith of the two blind men. But now it is as if Matthew is asking his readers, and your faith? Are you like the crowds amazed at him? Or are you like the Pharisees offended at him? A good evangelist is asking for their decision. Where do you stand with Jesus? I ask you today, where do you stand with Jesus? Where are you in relation to Jesus Christ and to the gospel message that permeates the entire scriptures? Will you be put right with God through faith in Christ, by grace, for Christ's sake? Will you stop running away and turn from your sins to God and believe? Today can be the day of salvation for you. It can be your freedom day. We celebrate today independence. This can be your freedom day today. This can be the day that you declare your dependence on Jesus Christ as, as his slave, as his servant, as his follower. How does this play out in the Christian life? How does this play out for Christians in daily life? It plays out by applying the gospel, the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the finished work of Christ to everything. Applying it to everything in life. It might sound like an odd thing to say. We need to learn to live moment by moment in the truth of the gospel message. See, our environment affects us. Our surroundings affects us. What we listen to affects us. Who we hang out with affects us. What we think about affects us. All shapes us. It it all shapes us. And we will either be shaped by gospel truth or by pagan lies. I like the way Chris put it this morning. It brings Jesus out of the corner of your eye into central focus. See, the gospel is not something we only need when we come to faith in Christ at the the moment of salvation, and then you can just go on to something else. C.J. Mahaney says it's not just one class among many, it is the school (laughs) under which you'll take many classes. All the aspects of the Christian life fit under the gospel. Sixteen years ago, in the discipline of grace, Jerry Bridges spoke of believers preaching the gospel to themselves daily. It wasn't until several years ago through the writing of Tim Keller that I really came in contact or at least I listened to this idea. Milton Vincent develops this theme further in in the gospel primer for Christians and he gives 31 reasons for rehearsing the gospel daily to ourselves. And he talks about how the gospel message applied to every aspect of the Christian life frees us from performance-driven striving, thinking that we need to uh, keep ourselves in God's good graces by good behavior. And it it, it leads us to grace-based resting, 
And, and interestingly, what it does, it's kind of counterintuitive here, but it, what it does is it frees us up for the most fruitful service imaginable. It doesn't slow us down. It, it gives us renewed energy in Christ. I've struggled for, with that for over the past 28 years as a Christian. Even knowing that in Christ I am justified freely by His grace, I still remember the day that I, that, that, the, the weight of that uh, teaching from Romans 3 uh, bared down on my soul and, and took it over. I remember that day. But even knowing the fact that Christ, that in Christ I am justified freely by His grace, through Jesus, that my standing with God is dependent upon Him, not me, I often slip into the mode of putting pressure on myself to stay in God's good graces by good behavior. Thinking that somehow if I just do this, that problem will go away. Or if I just do that, this won't happen. God is sovereign. We're not. The truth is, we are freely accepted and secure in Christ because of the great cost paid by Christ through his mediating work in our behalf. In the gospel, God sets his love on us. God predestines us to become like Jesus Christ, calls us to faith and repentance, justifies us, and and yes, even has glorified us. So certain is his completion of his work, of his plan. Galatians 5.1 tells us that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, do not be subjected again to a yoke of slavery. And our works-based righteousness, even as Christians, can be a huge ball and chain. This very short passage this this day uh, involves a demon-possessed man. But it's not primarily about a demon-possessed man, is it? It includes a mute man freed by Jesus, but it's really not about a mute man, is it? Some people praised him and some rejected him, but it's not really about them, is it? It applies to us, but it's not about us, is it? Matthew makes Jesus the central focus without having him say one word. Verse 32, they brought the man to Jesus. Verse 33, the man was freed by Jesus. Verse 34, the evil man accused Jesus. The mute man spoke. The crowds are quoted. The Pharisees are quoted. Jesus doesn't say a word here. But we know that God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. Hebrews 1 tells us. He is the central focus of human history. King of kings and Lord of lords, the way, the truth, the life, the bright and morning star, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, a merciful, powerful, preeminent, sovereign Savior who is worthy of all praise. Jesus died for all, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 tells us that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We're going to sing one last song. But I'm wondering, I've been wondering all week long, what, what words might have the, the mute man first said? It said the mute man spoke. The guy who couldn't talk spoke. 
What might he have said? Last week I heard C.J. Mahaney say this, I have been forgiven for many sins. It is not difficult to love him for that. My sentiments exactly. We're going to sing a song here that when I first heard it, it was as if the writer of the song had written my own testimony. It resonated with my heart that much. And the chorus goes like this. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life.